I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining me at the podcast today. I recently had the pleasure to talk right here in person, face-to-face with Chris Ray um, at UBC, since we both teach here, about his new book, The Age of Irreverence, A New History of Laughter in China. This came out in 2015 with the University of California Press. And as you'll hear over the course of the interview to come, we very much uh, were talking in the spirit of playfulness and humor and jokes um, to a large degree because that's very much the spirit of the book. So not only does the book offer a really interesting and I think impeccably researched um, and very, very thoughtfully argued and produced account of various kinds of humor in China, in modern China specifically, laughter and jokes, uh, mockery, farce, all kinds of ways of embodying the comedic in very uh, different ways in different contexts sometimes. But the book itself is also very much written um, out of a spirit of play, of playfulness, of humor. And that extends from an executive preface that you'll hear us allude to um, that's very much written um, in the spirit of a kind of Monty Python-esque skit, very much not what you'd expect from an academic book. And it's actually um, quite a refreshing kind of change of pace. There are also other little hidden jokes in the book, and Chris himself is just such a pleasure to talk to and really has um, quite a robust sense of humor. So you'll hear all of that come out in the course of the conversation to come. I highly recommend um, getting your hands on a copy of the book, in part because, among other things, there are all kinds of really useful, um, really fascinating translations of primary sources in the book, translations of jokes, um, of other kinds of humorous writing. Um, And these are really, really interesting to read and think about and work through, not just from the perspective of Chinese history, but also from the perspective of the kind of craft that a lot of us who work in non-Anglophone languages practice, even if we don't self-identify as doing so, and which is translation. Um, So there's some really interesting translation problems that come out in the course of working through the materials of the book. So I'll leave that there. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for your support of the channel. And I hope you enjoy. I hope it's going to be very obvious uh, that I did in the conversation to come. I'm here today at UBC to talk with Christopher Ray about his new book, The Age of Irreverence, A New History of Laughter in China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Chris, and thanks for making time and hoofing it all the way down to Buchanan Tower at UBC to talk with me today. Thanks, Carla. So, Chris, um, this is, of course, the uh, an exclusive executive edition of the New Books Network um, interviews based on the executive edition of the book that we're talking about. And listeners who have no idea what we're talking about um, either will or won't in the next hour. Um, uh, it's kind of an inside joke with the book. Um, let's start at the beginning. What brought you to the field of modern Chinese literature? Like, why China? Why modern China? Why literature? China is big, and I'm attracted to big things. Okay. <laughs> no, that's pretty much it. Uh, I started studying Chinese in college. I uh, enjoyed it. I spent some time uh, learning uh, Chinese in Beijing, Harbin, later Shanghai and Taipei, and uh, always loved reading novels. I was able to, you know, after a you know, jaunt through kind of insurance and, and banking, 
decided uh, literature is more interesting, and so uh, ended up in graduate school. And from a young age, had always been a fan of Monty Python, and so was kind of curious if there was any anything remotely similar in Chinese culture. And uh, found found a few good works that I figured could be made into a project. So that kind of got me started in this direction. But yeah, no no affinity, no like you know because Chinese food is so great that I that I study Chinese literature. <laughs> Not quite that. Yeah. So um, I'll give a little bit of background, and this is again from the executive preface of the book, and there actually is one, and it's very very funny. So I'm gonna talk about the unfunny things of the executive preface to kind of situate us. <clears throat> you tell us in the preface that historian Neil Harris has described the cultural atmosphere of pre-Civil War America as, quote, an age of irreverence. Okay, so this is the, the title, happily exploding established rituals. Now, during the first decades of the 20th century, Chinese culture, um, again, as you tell us in the book, had a similarly dubious attitude toward authority. The May 4th movement of 1919 was followed by a series of other crises that fueled anxieties in the words of the book about China's future. So the book explores five cultural expressions of laughter um, that are sort of bound up in ways of dealing with and working through and working with these anxieties. Jokes, play, mockery, farce, and humor. And those are English translations for Chinese terms that I'm sure we'll talk about or at least talk about some of them over the course of the book. So you've said a little bit about how you came to the project, um, this sort of engagement with Monty Python from a Chinese perspective or something like that. Um, as a as a PhD student, though, what made you want to focus on this particular kind of materials and what brought you to a decision to do a, a full project on this topic? I read a lot of really dreary modern Chinese literature during graduate school, um, and there's kind of the tears suffering. And you know, I'd watched a lot of uh, fifth-generation Chinese films, you know, Zhang Yimou, Chen Kai-ge, a lot of kind of cultural revolution trauma. Then in graduate school, got into reading, you know, some earlier works that were dealing with the fallout of the Boxer Rebellion or the, you know, Taiping Rebellion or, you know, Choose Your War. And all, a lot of that stuff was really interesting, but it also could be a bit repetitive, and this is a problem, you know, that's very well known in trauma studies. And I think the kind of trauma studies aspect of modern Chinese literary and cultural studies is very well developed. So I, I felt like that part of the modern Chinese experience had been pretty well taken care of. Still plenty of good work to be done, of course. But, um, you know, I had this kind of personal interest in comedy, felt like it hadn't been written about that much. Like, you know, everybody could name, okay, Lao She, Chen Zhong Shu, you know, and a few other people, Lu Xun, you know, are like famous humorists and had kind of approached that from a very biographical uh, perspective, you know, critical biography, and you just focus on these different auteurs of humor. <clears throat> but I was curious about how, like, the whole spectrum, like from, you know, ephemera, from, you know, mass culture and uh, popular culture from, you know, se semi-literate people all the way up to kind of the you know, the, the, the elite, you know, professor academy class, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a lot of the, the famous literati from that period were professors and, you know, founded journals and the like. So I wanted to get a kind of comprehensive portrait and dramatists too, a lot of people who worked in the stage as well. And so it's kind of a, a, a process of exploration. You know, I found some works, 
uh, that were funny. I definitely crowdsourced a lot of things. And then, you know, with that kind of critical mass of material, I was trying to think of, you know, well, what what strategy, what methodology am I going to use to kind of make sense of this? And what I, you know, came up with was, well, let's just focus on the, the key words that people in China at that historical period used to talk about humor, like to symbolize humor. And then, so, you know, how would we kind of map that constellation? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, is it tied, was the term like yoshi play tied to a particular sensibility that was different from huaji, mm-hmm. which also meant comedy, mm-hmm. uh, but also had kind of farcical com- connotations. And so that, that ended up being kind of the structure of the book. So different from that kind of author-focused approach. Okay. So is that one of the major ways that the dissertation transformed into the book, sort of a fo- moving from a focus to the author, on the author to a focus on these major concepts? And if so or if not, can you talk a little bit about whatever transformations did happen from dissertation stage to book stage? Yeah. It's always uh, when, when invited to speak about one's dissertation, right? On Juvenalia, <laughs> you, we all get a little fuzzy about the details. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, and that... You know, dissertations are often kind of a compilation of material with like a loose thread of narrative running through them. So I don't think mine was much of um, an exception in that regard. But one of the things that was different is in the dissertation had a much broader historical scope. So it went, you know, there are a couple chapters on the war, the anti-Japanese war. Mm-hmm. What was going on in the interior? What was going on in occupied Shanghai? There was uh, a whole chapter on cartoons, mm-hmm. the manhua culture, and uh, the periodicals and the famous cartoonists of that period. Another chapter on um, uh, cinema, specifically the early sound cinema. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of kind of vaudevillian comedians, Hanlan Geng, Yin Xiuchen, and... Uh, who were kind of Laurel Hardy types and a lot of slapstick humor. So I actually narrowed things down quite a bit, and um, but did move in more of kind of a keywords approach direction for the book, a bit more systematized. So, for example, uh, in the dissertation, I had kind of done this exploratory reception history of a novel called Witch Classic, Hudian, mm-hmm. which was discovered by all these like May 4th, Chinese intellectual luminaries in the 1920s. But I had done that kind of as a, you know, just a case study. And then for the book, I I rewrote that chapter significantly focused on the notion of ma ren or xiao ma, Mm -hmm. you know, like humorous mockery or invective Mm -hmm. um, for laughs, you know, when you're kind of mocking people to get laughs. And so that, that kind of helped me rethink the implications of that particular moment in Chinese literary history. Mm-hmm. And I went much broader into the literary periodicals of the period to see how much, indeed, people were cursing each other, right? <laughs> these these refined, you know, over, overseas students now teaching at Beida and Tsinghua and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, why was cursing suddenly so important? And it was not, you know, confined to, like, one segment of the literary sphere. It was all over the place. So... Mm-hmm. Like, so throughout the book, you know, that's one of the ways I kind of try to use these key words to say um, it's not it's not a new literature thing. It's not a so-called Mandarin ducks and butterflies thing. Often you have similar um, similar techniques or similar writing styles being used to people all all across the literary spectrum. Right. 
So let's get right into the book. Um, so the first chapter, Breaking into Laughter, introduces a figure that we'll come back to. Um, this is Wu Jianren. Now, he was, as you call him, one of the first prolific Chinese joke writers of the modern age. Um, now, he, in 1903, he began serializing two novels, A History of Pain and A New History of Laughter. And so right from the beginning, the book is introducing us to this relationship, um, laughter and pain. Can you um, maybe open up the book for us uh, and open out into it by talking a little bit about the significance of that relationship for you? in terms of the work that the book is doing. Yeah, and I thought that the case of Wu Jianren, who was indeed a very prolific uh, writer, and he worked in all genres, you know, fiction. Uh, he compiled, like, riddles, jokes, wrote essays, you know, worked a lot in the tabloid press in Shanghai, <clears throat> traveled around quite a bit. Uh, he was an interesting figure who I, I think uh, represents this uh, the pattern that in modern China in that period, writers did work in many different genres and different kind of tonalities, or I guess you could say they had different effective uh, uh, kind of effective strategies, you could say. So it wasn't like he was just chronicling the pain of modern China. He mm-hmm. also found a lot that was like absurd or ridiculous or, or just funny and not so tendentious. And, you know, the biggest cliche about the humor of this period is that, oh, it was just a cover for pain. Mm-hmm. So um, I, don't, I don't view it quite that simply. I do think that there is a, a, a complex relationship between them. Um, I also see that there are a lot of kind of standard, you know, almost cliché tropes that you get over and over. So history of laughter, xiao shi, was one that keeps coming back again and again. It was like how you, you know, in the Shenbao newspaper, you know, in your... A collection of jokes and you know doggerel verse and the like. That's what you would call it. That was just like this broad category for funny stuff, and like you can just throw anything into that cauldron. So uh, Wu Jianren, I think, was participating in that, and I think he was interested because one thing you see a lot with writers of that period is they really wanted to like tap into a, some emotional vein in their readers mm-hmm. or their listeners if they're later on radio. And they wanted some emotional response. And they were also competing in a a print market that was very, very, very competitive and got more so into the 1930s. And so they wanted to offer this, like, immediate payoff. So that's part of how I I, um, view laughter and pain, right, kind of tears and laughter as being uh, indicative of kind of a similar impulse. I do point out that, you know, in the case of Wu Jianren, the history of pain did appear at the beginning of the journal, and Xin Xiaoshi, a new history of laughter, appeared at the back. So I, I still think that that was a convention, mm-hmm. right? That uh, even the practitioners of, you know, joking and the like would sometimes belittle their product mm-hmm. as well. But again, it was so prevalent that I think it deserves to be taken seriously. And the fact that it's a history of pain and a history of laughter, you know, speaking to something that you just mentioned also helps us, I think, think about what history, what should meant um, in this context, which is not necessarily what we think of immediately now when we think of history. Um, And I think the book talks a little bit about that as well. Yeah. And I'll be very curious to see if historians, you know, 
evolve any new theories out of the Xiaoshi notion, where Xiao is a modifying shi, right, a laughable history or absurd history. And I know I was surprised to come across an earlier, like late Qing, joke book where they talk about this explicitly in the preface. It's、mm-hmm. like you know, a Xiaoshi can expand the minds of those who think about history,、mm-hmm. and so you know, it's very. A lot of humorists, you know, worldwide are very self-reflexive people, and、uh, you know, love word games,、mm-hmm. and、uh, you know, love that type of that type of wordplay. So I think that transition to the modern period. But and I call it call the book an age of irreverence in part because, right, you can be irreverent out of for different reasons, for different motivations,、mm-hmm. because.、Uh, You want to attack the past and attack the old authority figures, or because you want to defend the past and you think that like these new,、uh, new regimes and kind of new cultural standards are absurd.、Mm-hmm. And so I think that、uh, you know by calling the book the age of irreverence, I was trying to say that you have multiple things happening from people across the political、uh, and literary spectrum. Great. So as we、um, move into the second chapter, or chapter two rather,、um, after the executive preface and the first chapter, we move into a chapter on jokes. Right now, during the late Qing publish、uh, during the late Qing publishing、uh, joke publishing jokes and publishing joke books sort of、um, took on new functions.、Um, and you mentioned that during the late Qing, jokes became staples of the entertainment press. Right now, in the early Republican period, as you tell us here, jokes appeared in periodicals from newspapers to university、uh, li- literary journals. So we have the kind of printing and publishing and circulation of jokes happening in a new way in this period. A new class of professional writers, as you mentioned here, became well known for being joke tellers, and they were writing in a number of different kinds of forms. And the and the second chapter actually takes us into、um, some of these, and they're really fascinating.、Um, They include、uh, genres called joke novels. They include standalone joke books.、Um, you talk about、uh, more than a hundred Chinese humor collections,、um, and that was a conservative estimate, I think, being published between 1900 and 1937. So there's a lot we could talk about. We could probably spend the next hour just talking about that, and we won't. And instead,、um, I want to sort of ask you to talk a little bit about what you think is most interesting about these texts.、Um, so specifically. Specifically, you call Shanghai here a center for humor writing. In your research, and perhaps、um, for this particular kind of humor jokes, what were some of the most、um, interesting and exciting sources that represent the kind of、um, print and publication that jokes were taking in this period in Shanghai? Sure. Yeah, and there's a lot of scholarship on. Pre-modern Chinese jokes, like these、mm-hmm. great dynastic、uh, you know, joke collections, especially from the Ming Dynasty, Qing Dynasty, there are tons. They've been very well cataloged. People have done extensive comparisons of like how jokes were adapted or changed, and the like. Really, really fascinating stuff. Most historians or scholars of these types of collections stop at the late Qing、mm-hmm. or at the mid Qing, and my suspicion is that's because all that early stuff was like definitively Chinese. Whereas once you get into the late Qing and Republican period, you get a lot of like foreign influences and the like, and so there hadn't been much study of that of this、uh, period. So I started, you know, collecting these joke collections just to see what was out there, and eventually ended up with, you know, quite a bunch. And I kind of looked at were they written in classical Chinese, were they written in vernacular Chinese, or some kind of mix? You know, what was the actual content of these things? So it's often not just, you know. 
uh, knock-knock jokes or kind of A-B-A-B types of dialogues, you would again get verse, you would get essays, you would get short stories. So it's very miscellaneous. Mm-hmm. People often talk about the late Qing and Republican period as being so open and so kind of searching that it's very za. It's like the age of miscellany. Mm-hmm. And I think that's <clears throat> that can be uh, reinterpreted in a few contexts. So I, I do think it partly explains why you get so many joke books. You know, people are just looking for entertainment and, uh, you know, it's a relative, relatively cheap way to uh, reach readers. So there's a big market. The barriers to entry were very low, and so you get a lot of people doing it. Another is kind of the vaudevillian, what I think of as a vaudevillian energy mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm not an expert on vaudeville, but a lot of people talk about it as being related to um, modernity. And uh, so I think that you have some similar impulses that you see in like late 19th century America, mm-hmm. where there were people who like made a living just writing jokes mm-hmm. for the press, because there's constant demand for new copy. And people would adapt jokes into cartoons, write comic strips around the turn of the 20th century. And uh, some of this, the statements and some of the types of uh, joke collections that China's jokesters uh, were making and compiling around that period uh, seemed like a similar impulse. But um, you know, I want to go beyond the kind of China had it too thing to look at. Well, you know, a joke is a joke is a joke. But you know, xiaohua in Chinese can mean a couple different things. It can mean you know a true anecdote right. or story, right? Some experience that I had or something I overheard, which I'm now relating to you, or it can mean a, something completely fictitious and made up, you know, a spurious story. And I thought that uh, it was jokes are significant in this period because. Um, the kind of print culture and the journalistic element in literary culture, mm-hmm. right, where people were borrowing from the news media extensively in order to write fiction, mm-hmm. that this started to create a new type of genre of, the, again, the joke novel, mm-hmm. where it didn't matter whether the event was true or not, right? The main thing is that it was funny. Right. And so that this, this became a way that people started writing novels in the in the late Qing dynasty, so I talk a little bit about that. I also talk about um, again this explosion of joke books, joke book publishing, especially after the founding of the Republic, and how you even got highbrow writers like Zhou Zuoren, right, Lu Xun's brother, getting into the business as well. There was some remarkable, you know, joke scholarship. People discovered these old editions, you know, they punctuated them, they republished them, you know, they started doing scholarship. And it made some very interesting comments. So, like, Zhou Zoren observed that traditionally a lot of joke compilers had been Southerners, they've been from Southern China. And so I looked at, you know, well, who had compiled the joke books in the Republican period? And indeed, a lot of them were still Southerners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are a lot of observations you can, you can get from looking at these materials. Great, thanks. So as we move to the third chapter, we move to a chapter on play. Now, this chapter looks at the spread of what you call an entertainment ethos of play, or yoshi, in tabloids and in humor magazines. This is a really, really interesting chapter for lots of different reasons. Um, Now, in addition to talking about popular humor magazines, one of the kinds of sources that you bring us into um, are fantasy novels, right? Um, And you talk about fantasy novels that imagined ideal futures for China. And this is 
Um, you talk about this in the context of what Michael Gibbs Hill is call, um, has called future perfect, right? China's future perfect. Um, now, there are a couple of examples, at least, that you talk about, but one of them um, is Liang Qichao's The Future of New China. Can you talk a little bit about that in this context? Sure. Yeah, and the, the chapter on play is, I think, the most miscellaneous in some ways. That and the joke uh, chapter or two, the new ones that I wrote just for this book. And the play one gets into a lot of different cultural phenomena. It talks about literature. It talks about, you know, essays and uh, print culture. It talks about cartoons, but also um, new technologies like uh, cinema, photography, and how there was kind of a, a spectrum that was all encompassed with, under this term, yoshi. So in the case of Liang Qichao's famous unfinished novel, The Future of New China, this was a novel, I think he only published like four chapters of it in uh, Yokohama, in, uh, new, the journal New Fiction. And I call it, you know, entertaining possibilities because they were... If they found something, there's a partly a didactic impulse, right? We want to say, like, China's current governance structure is terrible. We need something that's more, you know, perfect. And so he kind of painted this idealistic portrait. And in the novel, right, there's a Shanghai Expo, and you have foreigners from around the world coming to China. China's the center of the world. It's a model nation. It's an intellectual leader. And you have a descendant of Confucius, Mm-hmm. Right, giving a speech and looking back on on the last sixty years of all the great progress China's made up till presumably nineteen sixty two. Right, this is written in nineteen o two, and so it's a famous novel partly because Liang Qichao is a famous intellectual and right he does has a lot of programmatic things to say about China. But there's another text uh, within the text, and that there's this other guy um, Di Baoxian who later became an editor of a major newspaper called Shibao, or the Eastern Times. And they make they have a lot of in-jokes. There's like the running jokes within the narrative. So you have like a commentator who wrote, writes these so-called eyebrow comments that appear at the top of the page, and then um, interlinear comments that respond directly to this ongoing narrative. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's kind of like a bantering comedy duo and you know some you know mr confucius you know descendant makes some jokes of his own but mostly uh it's kind of a a jocular take on imagining future possibilities for china i'm not going to try to repeat any of the jokes here but uh that's a a text that i think had been kind of erased you know most people have forgotten about it or or don't know about it and uh, even Within the context of this kind of banter between the two of them, uh, Liang Qichao himself makes some mistakes. Like you can you can discover mistakes that he made in terms of like calculating the time of what's happening when. <laughs> but again, I feel like that uh, mode of openness and futurism mm-hmm. did also open up space for a type of play. Mm-hmm. And you can you can look at this in a very material context as well. Uh, just a few years li- years later. This tradition of like literati commentary mm-hmm. on texts being replicated in like the machine print age starts to disappear. Mm-hmm. So it was a unique period in the late Qing where they were trying to replicate this old literati um, technique where you can make like quips about whatever text you are annotating, um, and so they were doing that. 
in this you know very you know seminal novel, but then that starts to fade out and play transforms into other forms. Great. Now um, the chapter also, and and we'll kind of move on. Um, even though I would love to talk about you know amusement parks and funhouse mirrors and um, split cell photography, there's so much else um, going on in this chapter that's really fascinating. Political cartoons. So um, listeners, I just want to mark this so that you have a sense of the variety of kinds of materials um, that are brought to bear here. Again, like haha mirrors and like photographs, and it's just amazing. Um, but the the chapter is also making a large point that as you call it or as you put it here play was a civilizing force right so it's not just that um at least it seems to me from the chapter thinking about the future opened up a space for being playful and for playfulness but also play was a way of moving toward po- uh, possible futures right yep okay cool can do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah and a play was meant a lot of different things to different people I think the notion of it being civilizing was very uh, seductive, very interesting to reformist intellectuals. Um, it was also, you know, some people look at the late Qing novels like Liang Qichao's as being expressions of desperation, like we're so desperate for anything you know, other than what we have in the present. Let's look to the future. I think there's some element of truth in a lot of that. But um, one of the things that I emphasize in the play chapter is that there is this kind of relentless exploratory and and open-minded attitude. And it's open-minded not just towards kind of visionary political thinking, but also to like devices, Mm -hmm. right? Machines, um, new technologies. So I talk about photography and, and uh, filmmaking and emphasize that because this was something that was truly new and modern. Mm -hmm. Photography had been around for a while, but you had all these kind of, double or multiple exposure techniques that we could, you know, so you could have two versions of yourself or five versions of yourself appearing in one photograph. So you could interact with yourself, you know, in a simulated fashion, thanks to this miracle of modern technology. And then so you have this being replicated also in moving images mm-hmm. as well in uh, the cinema. And so I kind of trace how that works and also how new visualities were connected to, you know, as you mentioned, these uh, new amusement palaces that were springing up, you know, major capital backing them. And they were going to be, have something for everyone. So for a nominal fee, you can come in and entertain yourself, mm-hmm. right? The new world, the great world, were like the places to go to for every for everyone from outside of town for several decades. And they were important also in kind of breaking down some of the barriers between uh, parts of the cultural hierarchy. So in the 1930s, some of these uh, amusement halls got a very seedy reputation because you had the mob getting involved in them. But for a while, you know, you had a lot of uh, big name writers who were like writing advertising copy or working for the daily newspapers that these institutions put out. (laughs) And uh, so I think you have a lot of really fascinating forces. And again, I do think that there's more to be said about kind of the vaudevillian style of uh, variety entertainments. But uh, some things that other historians have noticed, like split cell photography, mm-hmm. um, could be viewed as just a bourgeois pastime, mm-hmm. but I think are also part and parcel to the, a bigger modernity project. Great. So as we move from play to mockery, we move to another really, really interesting set of sources. Um, Now, chapter four looks at mockery specifically. 
Um, and you uh, introduce us to this idea um, by introducing us to lots of different kinds of things that were going on early in the chapter. Um, so you let us know that reformists were sometimes adopting a tone of mockery in their efforts to speak against both Confucianism and um, against the Manchus. Um, you also talk about Lu Xun. Um, now you've already mentioned Lu Xun a little bit in our conversation. I'm not going to ask you to talk at too much length about him now. We'll come back to him later. Um, but you do mention um, the importance of the figure of Ah right to the story of mockery. I think um, uh, he's called in this chapter to this day the most famous indictment of the Chinese national character. So I just wanted to mention that because we've just finished talking about um, uh, civilizational natures of play and sort of futures and identity and this seems relevant. Okay, but I need to ask you about this particular book that you mentioned here, which classic, He right? In 1926, linguistics professor Liu Fu republished which classic, He Dian. Um, now, this is a fascinating text. There's all kinds of things happening here. Let's start at the beginning. What is this text, and why is it so interesting in this context? So this is a novel, kind of a mid-length novel, just 10 chapters, written uh, maybe Jiaqing and Qianlong era, so kind of late 18th, early 19th century. We don't know exactly when. We know very little about its author. But it's a novel written uh, largely in Wu dialect, so kind of Shanghai, Suzhou region, mix of dialects. Mm-hmm. Um, some Mandarin as well, some classical Chinese. But it's a novel set in the underworld, right? It's set in hell. And it's populated entirely by ghosts or devils, right? Gui. And uh, so you have, you know, living ghost or living devil um, uh, as the the son of, you know, a a rich local devil who it's kind of a stereotypical uh, or stock scenario from traditional Chinese fiction of like the rich man who's at middle age and doesn't have a son. Mm-hmm. And so he and his wife go. And he goes to pray at a temple. Mm-hmm. In this case, the Temple of the Five Organs. And if you pay, pray at the Wu Miao, right? You're going to. Uh, that means you're going to have a lavish banquet. And so he ends up, you know, defecating in a grave or something because he's eaten too much at, after uh, that uh, spell. But he indeed, his wife gets impregnated by another devil, like a devil spirit, and gives birth to a living dead. Uh, so there's all of the the novel is populated by by these ghost devil characters, right? You have um, sex fiend Segui, right? You have Miss Stinky Flower Chou Huanyang, and uh, you know we have a devil beater Liu Liu Dagui, who turns out to be an abusive husband. So this is a, there are no humans in this novel. It's all devils, and all of the devil characters' names are curse words. Mm-hmm. They're like cursing expressions. Some of them are particular to the Wu region. Some are, you know, you find them around China. A lot of them are still being used today. Mm-hmm. So this is a novel populated by curses. And there's a, part of the focus is, is uh, attacking the kind of Confucian orthodoxy and like sacred texts and the like. Mm-hmm. And kind of book learning and like the... You know, the false promise of, you know, you study the Confucian classics and then you become an official. That's not so easy. Um, it also uh, attacks, you know, corrupt local officials who make things difficult for the populace and, you know, steal people's property. So there's 
um, a lot of outrage closed within this very farcical, you know, mocking uh, text. And so the, it's a very bizarre plot, which I won't attempt to summarize here. But I thought, wow, like here we have a work that really explores the aesthetics of mockery. Mm-hmm. And so I became curious, you know, if you if you take mockery as a type of literary aesthetic mm-hmm. or a, a mode of expression, you know, how do you analyze that? And so I focus, I use this novel partly as an entryway to talking about one Chinese motif, gui, right, devil, ghost, uh, which is, you know, a ubiquitous type of curse and one that su- suggests a type of familiarity. Like if you curse someone as being a gui, mm-hmm. whether they are a like a foreign devil or a you know, a drunk, drunk devil, someone who's always inebriated, it's something you're familiar with. Like you recognize them because you've seen it, you've seen the type before. So it, it suggests a type of familiarity, but one that's also, you know, very, very degrading. And so I was curious, you know, I discovered that this novel had a, an enthusiastic reception among, you know, leading uh, literary, you know, avant-garde literary types in the 1920s, and I became curious about like why were they so interested in this novel? You know, why did it speak to them in the kind of post-May 4th era during the Warlord era, and how did they talk about it? And one thing I discovered was that Lu Xun was famous at that time, to be sure, but who was more famous was this guy Wu Zhihui, mm-hmm. right, a founding father of the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party. You see, you actually say in the chapter, one might say that if Lu Xun was the father of modern Chinese cursing, Wu Zhihui was the granddaddy. I love that. Sorry, I just needed to get that out there. Because they always talked about him as old Wu. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like the familiar old, you know, erasable grandfather to all of them. And, you know, you know, Lu Xun had a lot of snide things to say about him, too. They weren't all enamored of him. But he was known for being an antic character. Uh, you know, magnetic personality. He always dressed in really slovenly clothes. You know, there's one, uh, he was extremely famous because he had known Sun Yat-sen and they had been, you know, comrades in arms mm-hmm. early in the revolution. You know, whenever you see photographs of Chiang Kai-shek from this period, it's Wu Zhihui sitting next to him in Nanjing and the like. So very high up, but he supposedly refused to become an official. And uh, no, I like to say he kept everyone at spitting distance and... Uh, you know, would would revile them and uh, really, you know, really vile language, but playing for laughs. Or he would be invited to go, you know, give a speech at some college and uh, arrive at the podium and, like, pull his speech out of his pocket. Like, all his change would fall on the floor. And so, like, him and the principal would, like, spend five minutes picking up all of his pennies. I kind of like, wish that happened more often. That would <laughs> make lectures more interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So, but so he was like this. He was all over the tabloids. Like they just could not get enough of this guy. And so, uh, the people who discovered this novel said, "Wu Zhihui writes just like uh, this." The the author of this novel. And so, like this novel became tied to the celebrity of a guy who was known as a revi- uh, a, a renowned reviler, Ming Ma. Right? He was someone who was famous for cursing. So I was interested in like at this historical period. You had people who were famous for cursing, like that was their style. And even Lu Xun, right? People talk about him now as being like a, a satirist, right? A feng jia. But to a lot of people, he cursed. He was known as a mocker. And so, it, so the novel gets into some of the, you know, personal politics of mockery. Mm-hmm. So one of the really interesting things happening in this chapter, and there's a lot more that we could talk about. I mean, you, you sort of. Um, uh, 
trace what happens in the novel and, and to its republication conversations around it, um, or you use the novel and the, those transformations to trace other transformations between the late Qing or the mid Qing in the 1920s. So there's all kinds of other things we can talk about. But I want to just make sure we're talking a little bit about um, your own approach to these curses and to the translation of them. So one of the really interesting things happening in the book is that you you give us a lot of primary source material um, in translation, right? There's some really great jokes in the book, really interesting sources. Um, and just trying to, as a reader, trying to figure out how challenging it must have been and what your approaches must, you know, might have been to actually translating some of this material. Um, it's a really interesting set of problems. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um, can you speak at all to your experience as a translator and kind of renderer of some of this material? Like the, the jokes um, here, the, the curses in particular, it seems like these pose a particular kind of challenge um, to the translator and someone who's writing about that. So what were some of the, the challenges for you in working with this kind of material and translating it? Yeah, and I, I guess the flexible would be the word. Mm-hmm. Try to be a flexible uh, translator. So, you know, Ming Ma. Obviously, there's alliteration in the Chinese, so renowned reviler seems to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. You have to capture that in English. Or I gave the example Gui, a very difficult term to translate. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, you know, a segue, you know, sex fiend, we have that term in English, so it's very handy because it's all a fiend is obviously a type of devil or ghost. Um, but horseren, um, uh, living dead, seems to make more sense, uh, you know, walking dead. So, uh, like, dealing with that term, I had to be um, uh, a bit more flexible. I don't think there's a particular secret to it. I would definitely admit that the... My study has some selection bias and that, you know, try to go for stuff that I felt like I could translate and, you know, jokes that translated well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, more elusive wordplay that is left out of this. You know, you could do a dedicated study just of doggerel verse from this period, mm-hmm. you know, from the late Qing and early Republican period. It was a huge genre. I'm sure someone could do, you know, writing a story about, like, the lantern riddle and the making of modern China. Right. Lantern riddles were hugely popular, and uh, another thing that was just cataloged endlessly in this period. But yeah, I think uh, the book. One of the things it tries to demonstrate is that you can translate some of this stuff. I, we don't have to like abandon ourselves to this ridiculous notion that like humor gets lost in translation or poetry gets lost in translation. Mm-hmm. I think you can certainly try to you know, replicate it. Mm-hmm. So. Readers would decide if it works or not, but I feel like, feel like you have to try. And I didn't want to just be like explaining jokes mm-hmm. through the whole novel. I want them to really sing and you know explain, speak for themselves. So as we move from this chapter to the next chapter, we move um, into farce. Now, this is also really, really interesting. Chapter 5 looks very closely and playfully at scams deceptions and fraud in print media. Um, And this is just, there's a lot of really interesting examples in here. Um, You talk about the significance of farce to a culture that might be called funny Shanghai, right? Um, So that's the context in which um, some of these examples I'll ask you about um, uh, exist. In 1928, there was a case of a mysterious woman named Chiu Suwen. Can you talk about that for us? What's going on there? 
and in this uh, women women's playthings. And why is that important to what's happening in this chapter? So basically, who was Chosu Wen, and how might we use that example to open up what's happening in this chapter for listeners? Yeah, Chosu Wen in 1928 was this really well known female literatus and painter, right? So she, like her poetry would appear in literary magazines, her paintings would appear at art exhibitions, but nobody had ever seen her. She was this mysterious figure. And uh, then one day in the newspaper, there was a an advertisement <laughs> saying that Miss Cho was looking for a husband. And uh, so, you know, all these men, over a thousand men, <laughs> you know, wrote, you know, asking for her hand in marriage. And she, so she wrote back to them and arranged a date at a, uh, at a park. And she said, you know, I'll, I'll wear green, you know, please wear a flower on your lapel. And so when the day came, there were like 1,234 men milling about the park wearing a flower. It's an amazing um, image, right? But she didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all the men are bewildered. And of course, like, what the heck is going on? And uh, the next day, each of them receives a letter saying, hey, I went to the, you know, my friend went to the park to scope things out for me and saw, like, all of these guys wondering about, like, is he pulling some kind of hoax or practical joke here? What's going on? And so the men don't know what was going on, but they apologize. And uh, she's like, okay, okay, we'll have another date at the cinema. And so, you know, on date night, there are, again, 1,234 men sitting in the cinema, having each bought, you know, a couple of tickets, looking around, like, for their absent date. And, uh, you know, this time he's mad. Like, he doesn't know what the heck has gone on. Uh, we're told, you know, it turns out that she had actually rented out the cinema for that night and, you know, made a, a packet off these suitors and took her girlfriends to Hangzhou to go play. And uh, so the guys, you know, again, try to contact her. Having seen, you know, a notice in the paper that Miss Cho had been in an accident on the way to her date and was now at such and such a hospital, like recuperating from minor injuries and the like. So again, it's this like three three part uh, attempt, and eventually, like each of the men writes to her and is like, "Please let me know where you live, you know, and I'll come and visit you." And so she gives all of the men each other's addresses, and so they end up going to to each other's homes. So this is a story, right? You know, this is a, a, a fictional character that made up by a guy named Xu Zhuodai, who was like Mr. Funny Shanghai in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, like he's a remarkable character in um, of himself, right? He had he was from Suzhou. He had studied in Japan, but uh, he studied like physical education, not you know not mining or something. And he studied ballroom dance. He came back to Shanghai, and he and his wife founded like these gymnastics academies. He later, uh, in the 1910s and 20s, worked in the theater, various theater troops, a lot of the pioneers of Chinese drama, modern Chinese drama, like Ouyang Yuqin, so, and so on and so forth, were members of his troops. He co-founded two film companies, mm-hmm. right? The Happy Film Company, Kaisen Yingpian Gongsi, made a lot of slapstick shorts in the ni- mid-1920s. Um, he wrote advertisements for the great world. He um, worked in radio broadcasting and you know performed funny routines. He translated Japanese drama, and so he did everything right. He founded a, a soy sauce company. Why not? 
Why not? Yeah, like <laughs> artificial soy sauce. I still don't know what it is. But yeah, he and his second wife, uh, you know, became like petty entrepreneurs and the like. So I think of him as being like a, a com- comic entrepreneur. And what he was really known for was being a funny guy. Mm-hmm. And so there's all this like literary field gossip that you see in, in the newspapers and magazines about you know, the latest funny stuff that Sujo Dai has been up to and his latest pranks. But he and some other writers from that period really thought that Shanghai was like a, an absurd and funny place and that, you know, it's now awash in deceptive advertisements and like con men run amok. Mm-hmm. And so this was like his muse. And so he I, he developed what I think of as being a huaji aesthetic. That was the term that was most closely tied to him that was very farcical. And like the hoax or the practical joke was really what made it work. And so he wrote all of these narratives and he created these figures like Harry Lee, you know, Li Amao, <laughs> Dr. Li Amao, um, who would, uh, you know, have a, an open column kind of like Dear Abby where people could write to him at like for life advice and he would write back. And so this character became a figure of short stories of, um, you know, movies made mm-hmm. about him. It was very accessible, you know, appeal, appealed to all ages, and it was essentially a trickster mm-hmm. figure. So I was curious, you know, why was, why do we need tricksters in the modern age? Mm-hmm. And it seemed, you know, very closely connected to a, a type of Shanghai ethos. Shanghai is a very slippery place. Yeah. You should have, you should um, sponsor or hold that conference as well, tricksters. That's that right. That needs to be, that, that's amazing. It's coming and- up. Just wait. <laughs> And in fact, this chapter... Um, Dear listeners, you can get uh, advanced tickets now for only $25. Just send them to the department address. <laughs> so just your place will be re- reserved. Yes. So your place will be reserved. Uh, wear a, a flower on your lapel when you show up to the conference. <laughs> just come to Vancouver. <laughs> just come to Vancouver. So the chapter um, talked a lot about these different kinds of practical jokes um, that print media would play on readers. And I won't go into any more detail so that we can move... Um, in further into the book, but um, you talk about plagiarism and fake advertisements, and in general, this spirit of hoaxing and hoaxers. It's a really, really fascinating chapter, and also really funny. But um, before we finish the book and the um, uh, interview, we have to talk about the invention of humor. So humor hasn't been invented yet. Let's invent it. Um, and we get there in chapter six. In the 1930s, as you tell us here um, in chapter six, in opposition to the kind of farce that we've been talking about and cursing coalesced into a campaign to, as you put it, change the tone of public discourse. You say that the result might be called the invention of humor. So can you talk about that? Um, what, what do you mean here by the invention of humor, and how did this represent an important reaction to and shift from what we've been talking about? Yeah, and it's most, most people who've written about modern Chinese humor have started with Lin Yutang, mm-hmm. who in 1924, the story goes, you know, invented this term, yomo, you know, a transliteration of humor, and but then there was like an eight-year gap or so until 1932. He founded the Analex Fortnightly, this humor magazine, loosely, you know, imitating like the New Yorker, slightly more highbrow. But it was going to be known for humor and kind of promote the New Times notion of humor. Mm-hmm. 1924 was around, you know, just a couple of years before which classic, <laughs> was published. <clears throat> so it was in that period when. Everyone was mocking everybody else. And Hu Dian, for listeners, was the one 
with all the um, curses that all the, the characters devils. and all, all the, the devils, ghosts. Right? Yeah. So, um, uh, so I think Lin Yutong in the 1920s was kind of responding to that, but he essentially felt like, you know, the farsers were just abs- absurd. Um, the players, you know, the OC people were all trivial. The jokers were trivial, mm-hmm. and everyone was just way too cynical. Mm-hmm. And so, essentially, all of these comic traditions that China had were not appropriate for the modern age because they were like self-defeating, or um, yeah, or just irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And he thought really what Chinese people needed was humor, mm-hmm. and he defined humor in a very particular way. Right? He thought that it was tolerant, it was humane. Right? Mm-hmm. It could it could see the humanity in uh, you know people's folly, you know, mm-hmm. whether they're common people, um, delusive, or even. Uh, grasping officials and the like. He also talked about it as a way to avoid getting shot. Like there was actual peril in criticizing the government into the 1930s in a very repressive Guomindang state. And so he could, you know, adopt something of an ironic pose as an individual to make clothed criticisms. But the main thing that he was, he wanted people to kind of embrace a different philosophy that was confident you know, self-confident. Like, there's so much self-flagellating among Chinese intellectuals. Oh, China is weak and backwards and so on and so forth, and we need to whip the populace to greater efforts. But Lin Yutang was this very cosmopolitan guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew multiple languages. He studied at Harvard. He had done a PhD in Leipzig and the like. And he moved in slightly different circles, which did open him to the criticism of being elitist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lu Xun, who also wrote for his for Lin Yutang's magazine said, you know, you're like the knights of the round table. Like only people at the top of the hierarchy can really enjoy humor. Mm-hmm. The peasants are being bombed. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you're like forcing humor down their throat, you know, you're being both pedantic and unrealistic. But amazingly, like his vision of humor and this catchword really caught on in the 1930s. And it was a movement that lasted 30 years, and actually not 30 years, it lasted for most of the 1930s. You know, it brought in a lot of major talent, um, uh, you know, leading, leading lights as well as kind of up-and-coming writers, you know, people a decade or two younger than him, including Chen Zhongshu, who had a lot of negative things to say about Lin Yutang. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it was a movement that was, uh, that did kind of trickle down and become very popular and became like the word for humor and kind of swept away huaji and yoshi and like xiao ma, you know, it's modern. People still talk about modern. But yomo became like the gold standard for, for um, humor in China. And I think that's still true today. So even though it, you know, during the war period, you know, we need something more militant, we need satire, we need mockery to attack the Japanese devils. Uh, we also, you know, in the the Mao Pira, we want to elevate Lu Xun, we want satire, we don't want this kind of gentlemanly, refined, bourgeois humor. Mm-hmm. But it's back, you know, it's, it's back again. And uh, people apply the term much more broadly. But so I talk about, in that chapter, about how this kind of came to be and what some of the implications were. And also, you know, people t- often talk about Yomo as being like a fad of the mm-hmm. 1930s. My guess is it would have continued a little bit longer if it hadn't been for the invasion of China by a certain country in 1937. Right. Thank you. So as we come to um, sort of toward our close, we also come to the close of the book. And there's 
um, a few really, really interesting things happening in the epilogue that um, talk about what happens later, right? What happens after. And you say here um, in the epilogue, this was modern China's first but not last age of irreverence. So you take us through some important kind of landmarks along that the lines of those uh, later uh, historical periods. Um, you talk a little bit about Mao Zedong, but then you bring us into a discussion of 21st century digital online humor and the ways that some of the phenomena you've been talking about kind of play out in this context. So because it's super relevant, um, uh, it's super interesting, we are in fact contributing to the online um, landscape by even putting this out there and doing what we're doing right now. Chinese translation forthcoming. <laughs> Chinese translation forthcoming, I'm sure. Um, send your check to That's the right. department <laughs> and make sure there's a little flower um, in there. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? For you, what are some of the most interesting things happening in terms of the, the digital landscape of humor in the 21st century in Chinese? Yeah, I mentioned that the 21st century context at the end, partly to draw a parallel or to point out some resonances in that, you know, in the early 20th century, you had print as kind of the new platform. Obviously, it had been around for a long time, but the volume of print uh, really gave an opportunity for the flourishing of this, of these new cultures of laughter. And so I think we see a similar thing going on with you know the blog era and you know with websites and other digital media where you can circulate memes you can circulate jokes you can circulate you know gag images very readily and so i i see this as being partly an echo of an earlier age and i think you could call it an age of irreverence um, with new some new limitations i think the reach of the state in terms of censorship is much greater Guomindang State, you know, had very crude methods of, you know, assassination and the like. Yuan Shikai would, you know, prohibit the the post office from circulating magazines that he didn't like. Right now, we have the five, you know, fifty cent party, the Wu Maodang, uh, censoring people left and right. So these have similar cat and mouse stuff going on at a much uh, vaster scale. So both. The humor and the repression, I think, have uh, increased dramatically. And I try to just gesture in that direction because it's so complex and it really does deserve another study. I think my own next move will probably be, you know, I chopped my dissertation in half, essentially, and added uh, some more stuff to write this book. I like to revisit some of the earlier material taking us through the war and into the Mao era. But I think there's, you know, there are uh, people working on this and who... Uh, you know, pay great attention to what's going on in China nowadays, especially online, because that's where a lot of the edgiest stuff mm -hmm. occurs, right? And humor is often most fun on, on those boundaries. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of wordplay going on. I just give just one or two examples in the book where people create new new words, like the portmanteau or characters. They, they, they mash them together to express something new. Um, there's a lot of punning to avoid um, keyword filters by censors. And so I think it's extremely relevant. And you know, there's a lot of brilliant, brilliant things going on in China. So I, I definitely recommend China Digital China Times, right, uh, which has cataloged a lot of these in the grass mud horse lexicon. And there are other you know, similar efforts underway. 
So I think this is an evolving story that's extremely important. And I do think that this tone of irreverence towards authority is um, in some ways proportional to the amount of repression. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm obviously hopeful that the repression will fall away and crumble. And, and I do think that uh, when you have enough collective mockery and kind of contempt, mm-hmm. open contempt, it can start to chip away at the foundation of repression. But I'm, I'm not in the business of making predictions. I'm more interested in what we've got now and what we've had. Of course. So the last thing that I'll ask you um, before we kind of move to the conclusion is just another thing that you mentioned in the epilogue, um, which is a case that's gotten a lot of attention in the past few years, and that's the um, giving of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Moyen, right? And you talk in the epilogue about the resulting controversy around that and the ways that that helps us think through um, these issues of the book um, a little bit more as well. So would you mind speaking briefly to that insofar as um, it's it kind of animates some of the things that's, you know, that are going on in the book um, as a way of kind of bringing us toward our conclusion. Sure. Well, I've mentioned, you know, at several points in the book and in our talk today that uh, these different types of laughter have often been denigrated, especially by historians, you know, mostly as being trivial, right? People accept that it's, you know, a part of life, but as a literary form, you know, C.T. Shaw once said that, you know, the humorist is always a minor writer. I love that takedown. That's great. <laughs> I don't know if I'd agree when it comes to, like, Dickens. Right. But um, at any rate, that's kind of what we, we deal with. And so I think it's quite interesting that, you know, the first Chinese citizen, let's be clear about that, right? Not Gao Xingjian, that Frenchman. The first Chinese citizen, citizen of the People's Republic of China, to win this kind of consummate international literary prize, the Nobel Prize for Literature, is a, a novelist known, yes, for writing about trauma and brutality, but often in a very farcical key, right, that is irreverent and profane and and humorous, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, you'd have to be uh, kind of demagogish to, you know, deny that Moyen tries to amuse people. Mm-hmm. Now, that's definitely a big part of his literary persona. And so it's kind of like this, you know, trauma and suffering in a key of laughter is one of the things that propelled him to victory. So now he's been elevated, right? Like he's at the top of China's literary hierarchy, at least putatively. We all have our opinions about the actual merit of his literary output, but I think that's an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that gets into the notion of like, you know, hierarchies within literary sphere or, you know, any creative field um, about the particular politics of uh, the People's Republic of China nowadays. And, you know, it's already a moment that's passed. You know, um, you know Moyen is, is still on the scene, still writing. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if people, you know, start imitating his style. But, you know, to be sure, China has a lot of, you know, active humorists and satirists mm-hmm. out there. And we also have new words, right? That's one of the things I point in the epilogue. You know, people talk about gao xiao, <laughs> right? Just make laughter. Just make it. Just do it, right? And this is like a new umbrella term, especially tied to, like, youth, but also connected to, you know, the Mao era when you want to gao right. geming, right? You want to make revolution <laughs> by any means necessary. And that is a great note on which to come to our conclusion. Um, so, Chris, there's, of course, a bunch of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that um, we didn't get to but that you'd like to mention for listeners? 
I think uh, one important thing is my book is definitely not the last word mm-hmm. on Chinese humor or even of the humor of that particular historical period, right? Roughly the 1890s to 1930s. One of the things at the end of the book is um, an appendix that lists, you know, over a hundred different humor collections in multiple genres. But my hope is that, you know, this is a treasure trove that people can draw on for future research. And there's a lot more work to be done on amusement halls, for example, Shanghai amusement halls, right? You also find them in Singapore, throughout British Malaya, and the like. Very uh, influential institutions that last into the Mao era, you know, have been revived again and again. Mm -hmm. So this kind of mass entertainment model. So I think that, uh, and of course, there's plenty more work to be done on the on the Mao era and the Reform era. So, or you know, underground humor during the Cultural Revolution. So there's still plenty more out there, and I hope that this book will kind of, you know, encourage other people to take the plunge and not worry about the approbation of their their colleagues. And speaking of um, treasure troves, I hear word that there's also perhaps a bonus footnote. Um, or a, a bonus end note um, somewhere in the book, and so I don't know. Is that I don't know? Do you, I don't know. Maybe only only in select editions. So you have to you know buy as many copies as you can. Right. Find the one with the bonus end note. Exactly. It's like the you know like the golden the ticket. golden ticket. The golden ticket. No, the golden, it's rumors. <laughs> the Wonka chocolate bar. <laughs> so Chris, now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Uh, working on my tan, but apart from that. <laughs> Uh, we're not getting much sunlight here in Vancouver <laughs> right now. But, uh, yeah, my colleague Bruce Rusk and I are translating a Ming Dynasty collection, supposedly China's first collection of swindle stories. I've heard of him. Yeah. Bruce I, Bruce Rusk. I, I might Run be married to him. Oh, know. that guy. Yeah, That's that right. guy. That him. <clears throat> yes, and, my, and uh, my colleague in Asian <laughs> Studies, and a mm-hmm. uh, fantastic scholar of uh, Ming Dynasty. Very handsome. Very well. handsome. Very handsome. Handsome, svelte, mm-hmm. dapper. <laughs> but anyway, you uh, Sorry, what were we talking about? Again? Swindles. Swindles, that's mm-hmm. right, swindles. Uh, this is a book, that we're calling it The Book of Swindles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it had a much longer title. It was like, you know, a new book for foiling swindlers based on worldly experience. It's like Jiang Hu Li Lan, Du Pian Xin Shu. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting book. It's a short work. We don't know much about the author, Zhang Yingyu. But um, he believed that the Ming, the late Ming was an era of decay and swindlers run amok. And if you're a businessman on the road, like, watch out. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, your fellow travelers may be swindling you. There are all of these, you know, ne'er-do-well monks and nuns cavorting about. And so this was supposedly like the handbook. You needed to know all the tricks of the trade so you could avoid being duped. So you can see how this kind of this interest draw, comes out of my focus on Shanghai, where it's like Shanghai is a slippery place. And actually, you had similar collections being compiled in the late Qing and the Republican area, era, mm-hmm. including by Wu Jianren. You know, Wu Jianren wrote about um, blind fortune tellers. Not just any old fortune tellers, but blind fortune tellers were particularly devious and would bilk you out of all your money. Um, don't trust them. And uh, so I'm interested in um, kind of cultures of deception and notions of deception mm-hmm. as well. So you see, I have like 
you know, gone downhill from laughter to <laughs> to uh, swindles. But I think it's fascinating, and this is a really um, remarkable collection. And you see some of the the archetypal figures and scenarios in this book being adapted into like rule and Weishu, mm-hmm. into the scholars, like the you know the most famous Chinese satirical novel of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm interested in its cultural influence, and we're starting by translating the stories, and I hope to do a kind of broader study of Chinese notions of deception and stories of Chinese deception from the outside as well mm-hmm. as the kind of within the Chinese narrative tradition. Great. Well, best of luck. If we can track down this Bruce Rusk guy, maybe I'll interview you again when that book is out so um, we can find him. And I should mention, I mm-hmm. seem to have lost my wallet, so I may need bus fare uh, to get back. Across town. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk. We'll see what we can do. Okay. And listeners, if you have any bus fare and you want to help Chris out, but no, no. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much um, for being here and for talking about such a great book, um, a playful book, um, and it's really been a pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.